Hi, this is Sunny, and I'm not with Sean today, but I'm just introing a podcast that we were interviewed on called Maybe God. And this is kind of cool because often we don't tell or get too deep into our story only out of necessity to cover other things on the rise after the fall. So when we were interviewed for this podcast and then they came back with us and said that we could use this ourselves. We thought this could be really great. And you will first hear Julie Royce. She is a reporter who talks about the problems. She often is reporting the problems, the problems in churches, pastors, ministries. So you may have heard of her before. She is the first part of the podcast and she's interviewed by the host. But then as she is talking about the problems and reporting on those, we are talking in the last half about a program and a plan we have for those problems. So it's kind of cool how they did this. And you're gonna hear way more of our story than we probably have shared only again out of wanting to have other guests share their story on the rise after the fall. So you're gonna hear a little bit more more about our story in the second half of this podcast, but I know you're going to enjoy it. I'm excited. I haven't listened yet. Uh, Kind of funny, but I will eventually listen to our own podcast, but enjoy. Hey, Maybe God listeners, I'm coming to you today from my church lobby in the Museum District of Houston, Texas on a busy Sunday morning, and we're in between Sunday services here at The Story, and as people are coming and going, I wanted to ask them a few questions for today's episode. I'm not sure how honest they're gonna be with me given the topic, but let's give it a shot. So, good morning. Um, Really just wanna ask you a few questions anonymously for the Maybe God podcast. So what I'd like to know is what would I, your pastor, have to do to screw up bad enough to make you give up on me? That's a great question. Tough question. Any specifics come to mind? Not really. What if I became a Yankees fan? I'd keep you. What if a pastor cursed in traffic? A pastor is still human. So it, I think if, if I curse and I'm forgiven, then if you curse, you should be forgiven too. That's good to hear. That's really good to hear. So what would I have to do? What line would I have to cross in order for you to change your view of me to the extent that you couldn't see me as a pastor anymore? Probably not be living your life following biblical teachings. If you stole money from the church, um, if you stepped out on your wife, none of those are unforgivable, but it would it would make it hard to follow you as a pastor if there wasn't some sort of real asking of forgiveness and trying to right the ship, I think. What if I dip my hand in the money jar at the church? I think if you stole money from the church in some form or fashion, that would probably be a deal breaker for me. Moral failure, taking advantage of church funds, run-ins with the law, anything like that. I'm hearing a lot of that today, like breaking trust where money is concerned or where like marital infidelity. Why do you think people talk about those two things more than anything else? Because that's what we've seen lately from leaders in the church. I think people see hypocrisy in a lot of pastors, and that could be a huge problem. So do you think we should set a higher bar of expectation for pastors than we should for average church members? Absolutely. Why? Because God holds leaders to a higher standard. And if I just, God forbid, did something egregious, 
that, as you said, was not unforgivable, but might be somewhat, at least momentarily, disqualifying as a pastor. What signs would you look for before ever trusting me again in that same way? Repentance, uh, confession, and certainly I think it would depend on how long it had been going on. Today on Maybe God, we're talking about the relentless stream of news reports of Christian pastors who've been caught lying, cheating on their wives, mishandling or even stealing church funds, and in some cases, sexually abusing women and children, and the ripple effect that pastoral misconduct has had on so many people who've lost faith in the church. Our first guest is the investigative reporter who publicly outed many of these stories. We're allowing pastors who don't have character to be platformed, and I think God is angry about what's happening, and I think the Holy Spirit is great because God's name is being trudged through the mud. We're also talking to a megachurch pastor who was forced to own up to his biggest mistakes and to walk away from his huge platform and the people who supported his ministry. I was acting like a third grade kid. I would lie, I would cheat, I would steal, I would yell. I would operate on a fear and shame basis. And we would go to these big events and people would ask for my autograph. It's like this celebrity thing that goes on where I knew that I was shattered inside. And you'll hear from his wife and co-pastor who hopes that by openly sharing their story, they can help other pastors heal before experiencing a fall as painful as theirs. I'm indifferent I'm God. to the existence of God. is not judging them. I don't have proof. I don't know how to pray. They're judging themselves. You know, where is God in all of this? This is my home. God exists. What does it say about God that he created the orgasm? I don't pledge allegiance to anything. I don't pray. Only to God. If there was a God. And I thought. I just have this understanding that life is hard. He could never love me after this. God is still good. You're listening to Maybe God. I'm Eric Huffman. Trust is everything, especially when it's your job to tell people the truth about God and the truth about themselves. Pastors, priests, and other church leaders build trust with their congregations by carrying themselves with humility and authenticity. But in recent years, as most churches and denominations have seen sharp declines in attendance and contributions, Christian leaders in America have faced unprecedented pressure to create more buzz and draw bigger crowds by putting on a more compelling Sunday morning show. In many churches across America, performance instead of trust has become the currency of choice. And pastors are more prone than ever to give the people what they want, which usually boils down to a service and a sermon that are sufficiently entertaining. But when pastors become performers, Christians become consumers. And the pastors who deliver the goods tend to grow larger platforms on which to perform. What's tempting about this model of ministry is that when it works, it really works. But it rarely works for very long. And when it stops working, the results can be devastating. One example of this is Carl Lentz, who was the pastor of Hillsong Church in New York City. Think about the stuff that you're called to do. You're called to live sexually pure in a sex-saturated culture. Good luck doing that on your own. You're called to stay married to the same person. Anybody who's been married over four hours knows. Woo! Jesus, here. Need you here, Lord. Lenz made headlines for his charismatic style, 
GQ magazine once labeled him a hype priest for his fashionable wardrobe and his ability to reach NBA players and other celebrities like Justin Bieber. In 2020, Lentz was fired after an extramarital affair and other indiscretions came to light. Revelations which set off a chain reaction of lawsuits and allegations that brought even more shame and scrutiny upon the church. This is a clip from a recent Discovery Plus docuseries called Hillsong, a megachurch exposed, featuring Carl's former mistress and other women impacted by the scandal. When we talk about Carl and purity, how could you shame me when I was so young, but you did this? Uh, hey girl. Hi. It was the most toxic thing I ever had to deal with. Here in Houston, Texas, many were shaken last year by the news that Jeremy Foster, the founding pastor of Hope City Church, which was at the time the fastest growing church in America, had left his wife and kids and the church they planted together to start a new life with his mistress. By all accounts, Hope City still hasn't recovered. If you don't know, I, you know, had a moral failure. I had an affair and I devastated my family. I heard the church that I was leading. Just to be quite frank, I, I, I never would have thought that I would have done this. And I'm deeply sorry. Of all of the stories of clergy misconduct that I've ever heard, and there have been many, the one that was perhaps the most shocking and heartbreaking to me was that of Ravi Zacharias the world-renowned Christian apologist, speaker, and author who helped nurture my own faith in the years following my conversion. If love is a supreme ethic and freedom is indispensable to love and God's supreme goal for you and for me is that we will love him with all of our hearts and love our neighbors as ourselves, for him to violate our free will would be to violate that which is a necessary component so that love can flourish and love can be expressed. Like millions of his other followers and fans, I trusted Ravi to speak truth into my life with authority. And I felt personally blessed by his ministry, which is why it hurts so much to learn that for years before his death in 2020, Ravi Zacharias had been coercing and sexually abusing vulnerable women all across the world. I knew the world to be an unsafe place before I met Ravi Zacharias. But I yet had hope that there were some safe and sacred spaces. I no longer live with that hope. I trusted him. I trusted Christendom. That trust is irreparably and catastrophically shattered. Even though I was a survivor before I met Arzad, having met and come to know him was one of the most traumatizing, soul-destroying, faith-crushing seasons of my life. He tore down everything that I had built that I thought was beautiful. My marriage, my husband, my home, my faith, my family's faith, my capacity to mother, my mental and physical health, and what little good repute I had, I had, and ultimately, my entire career path. The list of misbehaving preachers that have gotten caught in their sin could go on and on. Each one has left in his wake so many victims including people who've lost their church homes and in some cases have walked away from God altogether. I want you to know that we've wrestled for months with this episode. No one on the Maybe God team wants to air the church's dirty laundry or bring further shame upon Christianity. But as I said, trust is everything. And in order for trust to be restored in the church, its leaders must tell the truth. We start today with a woman who understands how rampant the issues are when it comes to clergy misconduct and controversies. These days, she and her team have been overwhelmed by the number of calls coming in to report pastoral misdeeds. 
they literally can't keep up. It's unbelievable. I mean, if I had three more full-time reporters, I don't think we could cover it all. We're getting leads every single day and every single one deserves covering and every single one breaks your heart. I mean, it's tough. Julie Royce is an investigative reporter who's often the first to publicly expose misbehaving pastors on her Christian news site, The Royce Report. Our tagline is reporting the truth, restoring the church. And people often ask me, like, why did you volunteer for this? And I'm like, I didn't volunteer for this. I got drafted. I was a radio host with Moody Radio, had a national talk show, but saw a lot of things that were going on that, that weren't so good and really was a crisis of conscience for me to blow the whistle on that. And so I did that thinking that would end my career (laughs) for good, which it did end my career in Christian radio, got fired. But then people just started coming to me with all of these stories and begging me to report on them because they were seeing some of this corruption and abuse within the evangelical space. And Mm. so many of the Christian news media wasn't willing to touch it because, you know, they— they're fed by the same beast that they would be reporting on. And so they didn't have the willingness to do it. And so I found myself in this unique situation where people were telling me their stories, where people wanted me to report. And so I realized, I think God's calling me to something. Her calling has made her a target of some serious backlash. Her most vitriolic critics are other Christians. They accuse her of being an angry, liberal feminist who just wants to destroy the church and bring down its leaders. It's ironic because I'm actually a conservative evangelical. I mean, anybody who knows me would laugh at at that kind of characterization. But here's the thing, is that I've been willing to call out my own tribe. And so people have tried to make me into being outside of this tribe and that I'm just lobbing from the outside, and that's not true. But I do have a conviction that we need to be able to hold each other accountable. That's a biblical, you know, value, to hold one another accountable. Iron sharpens iron. And if we are authentic in our walk with the Lord, we would invite that kind of accountability. But as we've seen, that isn't what's happening. The applicable verse here is one that I've rarely heard pastors preach on, and that'd be 1 Timothy 5.20, which is when you have an elder who's sinning, that you're to publicly expose him. Why? So that others may see, take note, and, and, and be warned. And the whistleblower is often someone who's very vulnerable and not in power. And so they really do need people to come alongside and help them tell the truth because so often the people that are supposed to be holding these leaders accountable, like their elder boards, aren't. Yeah, sure. I think what's really missing in the conversation, it's not just the power imbalance, that is part of it, but it's also the high bar of responsibility set by scripture Mm -hmm. for eldership, which is kind of part and parcel to pastoral leaderships. And if there's one reason why I keep coming back to the Roy's report, it's because as a pastor, I need to be reminded not mm-hmm. only of how high that bar is, and mm-hmm. um, but also how much harm can be done when pastors slip. Mm-hmm. And I know I'm going to stand before Jesus one day and have to account for the, the ways I haven't lived up to the expectations of pastors. And your work helps me to do that. Could you just talk a little bit about what you're seeing in recent months in the church, kind of trends and things among churches and church leaders? Well, the trend has been that there's, unfortunately, just an awful lot of of corruption and abuse um, within the church that is finally coming to light. And and people often ask me, is this is this just, there's a lot more of it happening now, or is it just coming to light? And, and when you look at what I've been reporting, you know, some of this, like it, take the SBC 
you know, sex abuse uh, cover-up scandal, which which showed just widespread hundreds of of abusers that were even known of with the SBC executive committee that they kept a list but didn't tell the churches. And this is definitely a trend that we're seeing is that pastors would offend at one church, would be found out, and then would quietly move to another church and re, re, be replatformed in ministry. And I, I said, it's like whack a wolf, right? You know, it's like you whack one and they come up again and again and again. And Mark Driscoll is a perfect case in point with this where, I mean, he did leave, his elders did call him out and he was publicly exposed. And yet he's been able to replatform himself in Phoenix, Arizona. He's doing yeah. the same things. In fact, it's worse than before because now he doesn't even have elders. And now, you know, he's very public with his with his staff that this is a family business. And so we see this abuse continue and, and these pastors getting platforms. I think what's happened with, you know, the social media age, with, um, with megachurches is that we found that pastors are given platforms and that becomes their power. It's not like the old days where a pastor was put in this position because he had he had character that was approved by the church or by the, you know, the denomination. It's because he's gotten a platform. And once he wow. gets that platform, it is really hard for it to be taken away and he will continue to use that. And it's hard for these elder boards to hold their mega church pastors accountable because the pastor is so big and he's the brand. Yeah. Right, and he's the one that, uh-huh. that brings in the money, and the church doesn't know very much about good governance, you know, about a board being independent, about a, a board being transparent with finances, these sorts of yeah. things that that do safeguard you. Um, but yeah, there's there's an awful lot of abuse going on in the church. There's an awful lot of misusing scripture and grace to allow a pastor to replatform after he's clearly disqualified himself from ministry. I mean, scripture's clear, you know, the overseers to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, self-controlled, temperate. And we've forgotten that fruit is not how many people you can put in the pews or how many, you know, buy your books. Fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, you know, faithfulness, self-control. And we're allowing pastors who don't have character, who don't have the fruit of the spirit, to be platformed and to speak. I think God is angry about what's happening. And I think the Holy Spirit is grieved because Mm. God's name is being trudged through the mud. And it's, yeah, I think it's just grievous what's happening. Sean and Sonny Hennessy are the pastors of Life Church in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Sean is also the chaplain of the NFL's Green Bay Packers. Early in their careers as pastors, it was clear that they were destined for a lot of success. But Sean is the first to admit that he wasn't ready for the platform that he was given in his 20s. I came to the Lord late in the game. You know, I actually got saved in a football locker room. Football's kind of always been a story of my life and it's been intertwined. And I was living the life of a division one athlete and got arrested and convicted of a felony. What felony? Felony robbery. I actually got out on a technicality. I served 111 days of a 15-year sentence, and I got 15 out. 15 year sentence. 15 years, man. I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life in prison, and I I got out. And by the grace of God, I would say now, but at the time, I thought it was just the luck of the draw. Sean grew up poor in a rough neighborhood in Ontario, Canada, just across the border from Detroit, and he admits that he lived a life of crime growing up. I come from a line of criminals. I've got an uncle who was. He was sentenced to life in prison. And I just felt like wow. it was part of my DNA. 
And, and the neighborhood that I came out of, there really wasn't that many tracks out. You could join the military, you could die, you could get a scholarship. And mm. I didn't want to join the military or die. So, you know, I went on this football scholarship. But what I discovered, Eric, is no matter where you go, you're with yourself. You take mm. you with you. And so I actually didn't commit a crime out of desperation. I committed it out of convenience. And we were just broke. You know, back then there were no NILs. You didn't, you didn't get to get money when you're on a scholarship. So I had a roommate who told me that there was an apartment near our apartment that was full of stuff. And he never saw anybody come or go. And so uh, he said, I think we should go rob that place. And I was like, yeah, I think we should. I'm <laughs> sick of eating ramen. And so we went in and I, I picked the lock and we stole. Uh, the value of goods was so high that it became a felony. It took less than 24 hours for me to be caught. And it's interesting when you're guilty and you get caught. There's a certain point where you just reserve yourself to the fact that you go, this was inevitable. I felt mm. like at some point I was going to spend my life incarcerated. So this was just the time. Not surprisingly, Sean lost his athletic scholarship to the University of Minnesota and was expelled. After he was released from the Hennepin County Jail due to overcrowding, he headed back to the Detroit area to follow in his family's footsteps and work in a car factory. 89 days into his new life, Sean got a call from a football coach in Ellendale, North Dakota. He was offered a full ride at a small private Bible college. I didn't know it was a Christian school. And uh, when I got there, the first thing I tried to do is buy weed off of a guy named Scott Sneer from Salem, Oregon. <laughs> and he told me that I didn't need weed, I needed Jesus. And oh, so, wow. So every day for six weeks, Scott Sneer shared Jesus with me. And before wow. our first game in uh, Rapid City, South Dakota, the football coach came in to give his pep talk. And his pep talk was John 3.16. I started to cry and I looked over and next to me, smiling like the Cheshire Cat, with Scott Sneer from Salem, Oregon. And I said, I said, I need to get saved. And wow. uh, we went into the, the shower room and I got down on my knees because that's what I thought people who prayed needed to do. <laughs> and they, they led me through a prayer and then they baptized me in the shower. And it was a, an instantaneous change for me. I legitimately had a genuine conversion. Like I, yeah. I was so in love with Jesus from the beginning, even though my actions didn't always show it. And I, I was kicked out of that school as well. And Jerry Grimshaw, that football coach, he went to the president of the school and he put his job on the line. He said, I will personally be responsible for him. I, I guarantee he will not mess up again. And if he does, you can fire me. Dang. That is amazing. Yeah, I mean, a he kid. had a wife, two kids, a house, a car, you know, it was yeah. crazy. So the second time at the smaller school, what happened there? Well, I got caught smoking weed in the dorm room. And actually, you know, I have a picture of it. I had on basketball shorts, no shirt, a giant purple foam cowboy hat. And the room is filled with smoke. And the dean of the school walked in and I was smoking a joint. And when he walked in, I offered him a hit. It's, it's just polite to me. Bro, you know? and just so polite. He, I mean. he, pulled, he pulls me into his office and he said, dude, you can't smoke weed and be saved. And I was like, well, I didn't know that. I just got into this team. You know, I was like, well, if I would have known that, I definitely wouldn't have been doing it in the dorms, but I I probably wouldn't have been doing it anyway. Because I'm, I'm a bit of a, I'm a bit of a rule person. Like if you tell yeah. me you can't do this, 
and I and I believe in what it is that you're subscribed to, then I'll I'll toe the line. Yeah. I mean, it's another example, I think, of an important thing for Christians to keep in mind, which is when someone comes to Christ, in some ways the change can be instant and and complete, but in most of the examples I can think of, people that come to Christ bring their habits and and old sort of ways with them, and it kind of takes some time to work them through and work them out. Mm-hmm. And for the the new law of Christ's grace to set in, and for us to learn how to respond to that, as opposed to the old ways that we've been living. And sometimes there's a little bit of a of a gray zone for a convert like you smoking weed at a Christian college, right? Like we have to be yeah. really understanding. One thing that's really interesting to me about your story at this stage that I do sort of vividly recall is is how you were sort of brought back into the school's good graces and sort of given their stamp of approval again. They heard you like singing or something. Like you're a singer. You can sing on top of everything else. Yes, they did. I sang at a wedding and uh, and the president of the school approached me and asked me if I would travel with him as he preached and promoted the school. And if I would sing and open up for him and I said, well, I don't even go to school here anymore. Uh, so, so he said, well, you let me worry about that. So, wow. <laughs> history. Which is beautiful and good. And I'm so glad that happened for you. But in light of the conversation we're about to have today, it's one example of how the deeper issues that need ministry can mm-hmm. be sort of forgotten in light of extraordinary talent. And we in the church tend to prop up really talented people that have yeah. deeper things going on that need work, right? Definitely. So is it fair to say that you were not really spiritually prepared to be put in the spotlight at that point in your life? Oh, Deb, I wasn't spiritually, emotionally, m- maturity, n- none of the above. Sean's talent for singing and speaking to large crowds flourished as he continued to represent his Bible college at various events. In his sophomore year, the love of my life walked into the cafeteria And the first time that I saw her, I looked at the guy who was sitting next to me, who was my roommate at the time. And I said, I said, bro, I'm going to marry that girl. (laughs) He goes, "Uh, who is she? What's her name? I said, I don't know. And I'm going to find out and I'm going to marry her. So she is 26 years later. What was it about her? Honestly, the first thing I noticed about her was her calves. She has incredible (laughs) I'm going to marry them calves, man. Yeah. <laughs> my calves were as muscular as Sonny's. I would have been in the NFL. It's just, it was, and then it was um, her personality. She was uh, disengaging. She was funny. There was no BS about her. She called yeah. me out on stuff and she still calls me. 26 la- years later, she's still calling <laughs> me out on stuff. Sonny was a 17-year-old freshman when she walked into the cafeteria that fateful day. And Sean was 21. Just like Sean, Sunny also found herself escaping the emotional and psychological trauma that she'd experienced in her small South Dakota hometown. I was raised in a ranch until I was age 12. I mean, when I say a ranch, I mean there were five people that lived within a 10-mile radius outside of my family. So I went to a little school all of my years, and I was going to be a perfect Christian once I got saved. And my plan was that I would stay pure until marriage and not have sex. I had a t-shirt that said, I'm not doing it. I proudly wore around eighth and ninth grade. That was going to be my story and made it about almost two years and fell madly in love at age 14 to the love of my life. And I was the one that said, we're going to get married anyway. I love you so much. Let's have sex. I got pregnant. 
And wow. um, I got pregnant at 14. And at 15, I go to my sophomore year pregnant in a maternity outfit to high school. And so wow. this was quite the story for people. Uh, my parents were large employers in town. So they loved that this little rich girl got oh, what yeah. she had coming. She was preaching at people with her t-shirt and now she's pregnant. And so bullying went to a whole new level. I got to 23 weeks along in my pregnancy and I'm in typing class. i felt like something's weird. And basically I went into labor at 23 weeks along. And when I go to the doctor, they're like, you know, the baby's coming. And the, the doctor looked at my mom and said, we can save your daughter or the baby. Obviously he was interested in saving me. And so I did have a baby at 15. Um, she lived for four hours. And so I go from 15, now I'm a mom, but I'm also a, a mom who's lost a baby to I'm a sophomore in high school. So I grew up quick, graduated a year early, went to Bible college because my Aunt Judy just took me under her wing and was a great woman of God. And I wanted to be like her. And that's where he saw my calves. What did you see in him? Did he also have nice calves or anything going on? I liked the bad boy, the rebel boy. So I uh. wanted to be the good church girl per se, but I liked the rebel boy. Right. And so what I saw in him was he looked and was the coolest guy on campus because all the other boys were kind of dorky right. and he dated immediately. Yeah. Did y'all get engaged while in college? So I was 17 still and he was 21 yeah. and we went on a walk and at the end of the walk, I looked at him and I said, if you don't think this is going to end in marriage, we should end it now. And he just looked at me. He goes, can I let you know in the morning? <laughs> and I went back to my dorm and flopped down on the bed and told my roommate who had introduced me to him. I said, I just blew it. Like, we're not dating. I told him that. She goes, oh my gosh. And the next day he acted like nothing happened. And then a couple days later, he had me picking out utensils for his apartment. And then that's August. And at Christmas time, we went home to my parents and he asked me to marry him. And we got married by February. Both Sean and Sonny felt a clear call to ministry. So after college, they headed to Memphis, Tennessee, where they both worked as youth pastors and quickly became addicted to success and people-pleasing. While their public lives thrived, at home, their marriage was fraught with fighting. And a few years in, things began to unravel. We had uh, a miscarriage. And then Sonny got pregnant, and almost immediately in the pregnancy, we were at an ultrasound and, and the ultrasound tech actually left the room without talking to us and Ooh. came back in with the doctor. And the doctor actually looked at us and said, you guys need to terminate the pregnancy. And she kind of went through, you know, what the challenges were and the fact that the, that the baby wouldn't go to term. And if the baby went to term, uh, she would die almost immediately. And so we had us a revival meeting. We had a, special speaker come in and we had multiple nights of youth services leading up to the, to the actual due date. And the speaker at the time had us come forward in front of everyone, all our teenagers, hundreds of teenagers. And he began to prophesy over us that God was going to heal our child. And, and had all the kids that could fit around us come and lay hands on us. And they, he prayed and spit and sweat and shout. And we went the next morning and she was born. And when she was born, she was actually worse than they anticipated. 
And so mm-hmm. they they actually didn't let Sonny see her at the beginning and uh, and brought me up to see her in the NICU. It was shocking. I didn't think there was any way that she would make it through the day. Mm-hmm. And so she lived 18 days and we learned lessons that you you never want to learn firsthand, but we also learned some lessons that you only can learn firsthand. Yeah. And I learned what it is to be mad at God. Mm. I learned what it is to use every profanity that you can about God and to God. And he yeah. didn't smite me. And we got to hold her. We got to be parents for 18 days. And it mm. was it was the most heartbreaking thing. We had to we had to actually physically pull the plug on her. I've never had more pain in my life than at that moment. Uh, but at the same time, to feel this, this is such a churchy word, but to feel the sovereignty of God in that moment. It's interesting how two different people do two different things though. In that, he was angry with God and he wanted to walk away. In that, I took it as, well, this is judgment on me being a teenage pregnancy. Wow, this really? This actually is the uh, the discipline and the vengeance of the Lord to say you shouldn't have screwed up earlier and then you could have kids. I think we had just put our nose to the grindstone when that happened. Mm-hmm. We just doubled down on ministry. We wanted to become more effective. And you, probably a year later, uh, we were doing these Friday night prayer meetings and uh, we, we had a 16-year-old girl that was listening to Sonny pray and and came up to Sonny and gave her, she said she felt like the Lord told her that she was supposed to come and tell her that by this time next year, you guys are going to be parents. It's going to be a boy. He's going to be healthy and you need to name him Isaiah. And it, it was true. It happened. She got pregnant. He was born. And you know what was interesting? And I I have nothing ill to say about the church that we were youth pastors at at the time. It changed my life. My, yeah. that, my pastor there is my hero. But I think people were so tepid when it came to getting excited about our pregnancy because they were like, well, mm. this is what we what know if? and this is what we've seen yeah. happen. And so there, there were two people that showed up, you know, a church of 5,000 people. There were two people that showed up at Sonny's baby shower for Isaiah. Wow. And and that was like a, a dagger to Sonny. I'm sure that she probably questioned, maybe not her call to ministry, but definitely our call to that church mm-hmm. at that point. And so when an opportunity presented itself for us to go do a different type of ministry, that's when I went on the road. Sonny and Sean moved to Florida to be close to her parents. When Isaiah was just one week old, Sean started his new job as a full-time traveling evangelist. For four and a half years as an evangelist, I was gone almost all the time. And Mm. so I think in the midst of that, the enemy started to weave these lies in both of our minds about the fact that we are better apart. Mm. When everything that we'd ever done corporately had always been successful. And so then when you had Sunny become a youth pastor and she had one of the largest youth ministries on this in the Southeast United States, and I'm speaking in front of these huge crowds. It seemed on the outside like we were 
functioning better apart. But mm. the more that we grew in our career, the more that we shrunk in our personal life. And so yeah. we, we just, we didn't even know how to talk to each other anymore. And, and then we're new parents. And, and then a couple of years later, she got pregnant with our daughter and I was at a camp and she called me and she said, I'm pregnant. And my exact words were, what am I supposed to do about it? Mm. I was 100% a non-supportive partner in our yeah. early parenting. And I was like, well, you raise the kids. I'll be out making the money. And even though she had a full-time career and it was like this weird boundary that I had in myself or barrier that I had in myself that wouldn't allow me to go all in because I just knew at some point she was going to leave. Right. This is easier and safer in your mind because yeah. you were believing the, the lies of the enemy. It was easier and safer to, to keep your distance. Yeah. And we've gotten some counseling, but it was like marriage counseling here and there. And like we had more than a communication or a money or a, you know, a date night problem. We had yeah. like, I was, I had had a baby and just buried it and moved on. And he had been arrested and thought he was going to mm -hmm. live in prison forever and just got saved and moved on. And we didn't deal with emotionally with so many things. And then we wondered why we took everything out on one another. What did that manifest itself like at home? Sean came from a really rough neighborhood and he came from a poorer home. And so he would view me through the lens of his mom. And then I did, I'm a Northern woman and we don't, you know, submit well. And so I wore the pants in the family. So then I was making it like I was his mom and how I spoke to him and left him sticky notes for, you need to take out the garbage, do this, this, and this. And he would respond like a small child who was yelling and frustrated his mom, um, not do what I had said, not fulfill my expectations at around the house and then blow up and yell or storm off like a child yep. does. I really appreciate the vulnerability there because that's the part of the story that never gets told. And that's why pastors end up in such predicaments and it's a self-made, you know, sort of problem. I'm not saying pastors are victims necessarily, but when we have that going on at home and then we also go to church and perform mm -hmm. and talk to others from stages and in spotlights, as though we know how family works, as though we're the model. There's an even deeper resentment that grows in a marriage when you stand there and watch your spouse get up on stage and lie. Yeah. You know what I yeah, mean? And so um, yeah. it, you bring it home and it just festers even more. Yeah. And to be to go even more vulnerable, maybe, uh, then we had kids. And so he's out either on the road as an evangelist where they're treating him to nice meals and putting him in good hotels. And he's on stage and gets off stage and hundreds are like, oh my gosh, you're amazing. And he comes home and the, I meet him at the door with a child with a poopy diaper. And I'm mad because I've been home doing this. I have a mm. career I want. And I'm so, and this is what women do a lot behind closed doors. We just wear our man out because you don't take the load that I carry. I mean, this can be the other way around, but typically then he's getting treated so well in public and getting treated so poorly at home. And I remember when we were really coming to blows, um, I finally shared with my mom, like, mom, we fight all the time at home. And she said, Sonny, I feel like what Sean needs is to come home to an oasis, not to a war zone. And I was like... Mm. Ding, ding, ding. That that was the beginning of maybe I'm some of the problem because, mm. of course, I wanted to think he was the problem. But in honesty, 
I mean, there was a lot of things I should have been confronted about, you know, because I was acting like a third grade kid. I would lie. I would cheat. I would steal. I would yell. I would operate on a fear and shame basis. And and it, it is challenging, you know, when you're in ministry. When I was an evangelist, you would we would go to these big events and bro, people would ask for my autograph. Right. And it's like mess with you. it's like this celebrity thing that goes on where when you are damaged, you're not immune to the fact that you're damaged. You're not ignorant to it. Like I knew that I was shattered inside. And so I, I was trying to figure out not only how do I cover it up in public, but I would go through spells where I'm also trying to cover it up in private. Hmm. But it, you know, it's like a percolator. It would just get to a point where I just like, I, I would get caught in something and I would always get caught. And Sunny has this, this great analogy where she says like, God keeps her on a short leash and she prays for that. And I felt like at times God had me on a choke chain yeah. and I would do things wrong and he would make sure that I was caught in that thing. And I think yeah. in the beginning, I viewed it like God was mad at me for the things that I was doing. But then probably when I became a dad, what I realized is he's actually doing it for my benefit. Mm. He's doing it because he sees more in me than I see in myself. He, he was looking at me the way he looked at Simon. Like he viewed me as the rock when I just viewed myself as a damaged throwaway. And I think I right. lived most of my life feeling like Sonny was going to leave me mm. at really? some point. Wow. It was inevitable. I was gonna get abandoned. I couldn't. I couldn't break away from the insecurities of my life because I was living my life like a child. Over a decade into their rocky marriage, Sean and Sonny knew something had to change if they were going to avoid a divorce. Sean gave up his life on the road as an evangelist, and the family moved to Detroit, where Sonny and Sean merged their ministries and became senior pastors of a successful church. But since they still hadn't dealt with the hurt and the shame each of them had brought into their marriage, things got much worse before they got better. So now we're back in this home that we love each other, but we hate each other and we don't like each other. And uh, <laughs> That's complicated, and then, man. Yeah, it's yeah. very complicated. But I think there's so many marriages that way, right? Absolutely, yes. And so Sean was one, he would spend money and have it on credit cards and I'd get the statement and I paid the bills at that point, which is another bad thing when you're struggling to not be the mom of him. And, and so I'm paying the bills and I'm like, what is this? And he's thinking, I bring in all this money traveling. I can buy what I want. So it started as that. It started, it wasn't drugs, alcohol, sex. It wasn't that. It was the, the sneaking money and then eventually it turned into more and more spending. And then I found a credit card uh, receipt and it said that it was for a Harley Davidson. No, it wasn't a Harley. It was a Harley. It was a Harley. What about a Harley without her knowing about it? Oh. But he had Bruh. told me that someone in our congregation in Detroit gave it to him. Yeah. So some deception there. A lot of yeah. brokenness. So at that point I was like, oh, I think there's, I think there's way more going on than I even think. And and there was. It did turn into relationships with other people, whether that was emotionally or it was, you know, we had interns that on both sides because we were youth pastors for so long. So I'd have interns, he'd have interns, and they would just be totally enamored by us. Yeah. And so we, it was the point we would cross the line in talking about our marriage with interns. Right. Like that right there is dangerous. You're in danger zone at that point. Yeah, you've crossed into the into the dangerous territory, right? When you start oversharing. 
like uh, telling people who have no business knowing about your marriage, how sad you are or unfulfilled you are right. or whatever, like you're past the point of no return in some ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, by God's grace, there's never a point of no return, but in terms of developing inappropriate relationships, you're there at that point. Yeah. And I think the, the straw that broke the camel's back after, you know, all these, a decade of ups and downs and deceptions, I think the straw that broke the camel's back for her was that not only could I do something that was deceptive towards her, but that I could use the Lord as mm. as a lie mm-hmm. in that. And she came to me and she said, I'm out. And she packed whatever she could pack in the back of her parents' pickup and my two kids, her and her mom and my two kids, pulled out of our driveway in Plymouth, Michigan, and left me in my driveway bawling, begging her not to leave. And she left. And my father-in-law stayed with me. He stayed with me because he was worried about me. Like he viewed me like a son and he was so mad at me because of what I'd done to his daughter. But he wanted Mm -hmm. to make sure that I didn't do anything uh, that, that was irreversible. And, you know, honestly, Eric, we experienced the same thing that you talked about earlier, where sometimes your, your indiscretions can be covered up by your talent. And my church kept me. Like I went to my board and I said, Sonny's left me. I think we're going to get a divorce. And they, they said, well, you're not going to resign. Are you? We need you. Our attendance was blowing up every week. People were getting saved. It was bananas. And, and I just remember I I was so torn about that. And I mean, I didn't want to lose my job because I needed the money. And in my mind, I thought, well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll win her back. But I, you know, after a couple of weeks, I was like, bro, she's not, she's not coming back. She had divorce papers drawn up and they weren't signed, but this was like, no, this is really going to happen. And real quick, after she left and you had this talk with the board, did you take a break? Oh, none. Not even a Sunday. I didn't take Sunday off. I think you're up preaching the following Sunday. Well, I left on July 3rd and it was like right before the 4th of July. And two days later he preached the message and he just told the congregation, he said, Sonny left. And the congregation didn't leave, bro. It was just like. Yeah. And I, so what did I that communicate to you at that particular point in time? Talent was the most important, that he was still only loved and adored because of his talent, which was a phrase he learned in college, that mm. I people will put their job on the line to keep me around, to get the school more attendance. And and this isn't just the church. This is everywhere. We excuse celebrity all day long because yeah. it is a return on your investment. And he was a product. We talk a lot about the the evils of objectifying people, like, uh, like how we objectify women physically. This is another kind of objectification mm-hmm. of people. You know, I think, Sean, you more than willingly accepted this objectification, you know, uh, at that point in time, but it didn't do you any good. Oh, definitely not. I think it took me into a whole spiral of, well, I guess I knew anything I want. Yeah. And my wife can leave me and you're going to keep me around. Yeah. Bro. I, mean, I can do anything that I want to, but you know, when she left, there was, there was a realization in me that I remember we went to the first time that we went to marriage counseling, we had this guy who looked at me and he said, he, he said, Sean, she needs to know that you need her. And I looked across him. I said, I don't need her. But sure. later on when she left, what I discovered is not only did I want her, but I also did need her. 
that yeah. she was the piece of me that God had destined to be put in place. And when she was gone, man, I was a wreck, bro. It was like I was in middle school again. I went out, yeah. got a big chain. You know, I, mean, I have a bunch of tattoos and, I, you know, I kind of was a thug growing up anyway. So I went back like thug mode. I went and got a dog. I got like a big bull <laughs> mastiff and I, and I was eating Hungry Man meals and oh, watching no. Rambo. And it was like, <laughs> dude, what? And after a couple of weeks, I was like, this is bogus. Right. And I realized, man, this is, I want to be in a place where I need to be a man of God. I needed some level of accountability. I needed people who, I really needed that board to look at me and say, all right, it was good knowing you. And what happened here right. is I had a guy, I had a guy who called me, it was my pastor, Fulton Buntain. And there's no one on earth that I respected more than Fulton Buntain. He was, he was like my dad. And he, he called me up and he said, Sean, this pastor, and I'm just calling to see if you're still an a-hole. <laughs> That's what you needed. <laughs> not only had I never heard Pastor Buntain swear, I had never heard him get sideways with someone. He was the kindest, lovingest person I'd ever met. And I said, <laughs> um, I didn't know I was an a-hole. <laughs> and he goes, are you and Sonny back together yet? I said, no, sir. He said, then you're still an a-hole. Don't ever call me again until you and Sonny get back together. Wow. And that was like the picture of what love and accountability was meant to be. And then another guy called me who was Pastor Buntain's son-in-law, a guy named Rich Wilkerson, who he was, he had kind of been one of my mentors growing up because Pastor Buntain was his father-in-law. And so he called me and cussed me out and told, and told me, these are the exact words. He said, you need to get in your car right now and go get your wife back. You need to quit that church. You need to leave everything. He's like, go, go work at the mall. Do whatever you have to do. You need to go get your family back. You're being an idiot. Did you and take I, his advice? I did. I got in my SUV and I drove to Florida where she was. Sorry to interrupt you, but what did you do when you actually got there? Well, he had his chain on, so I was immediately appalled. <laughs> and I walked around my parents' house and ignored him. God kept me righteously angry. And I've told women that a lot. Like, you don't have to get a divorce to separate and ask God to keep you righteously angry so that there will be change. And I'm so glad God didn't just have me go back to him and hug him like everything was fine, like mm. I always had. So I agreed to go back. Uh, with the kids and live in a different house. And then he just started dating me. And I didn't, I mean, and he just stuck it out because most of the time I just look across the table and be like, you make me sick, like inside. <laughs> and like, You're just a dirty dog. And, um, and so it, it wasn't just the slow dating. It was that then uh, he found out about a program in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and uh, we went to Green Bay, Wisconsin for eight days for an intensive. And he went into a counseling session with a man and a men, group of men. I went with women in a different classroom and they kept saying, focus on you. Don't focus on your spouse, focus on you. This mm. is you. And I mean, I got down to things that I realized um, were in me and it wasn't all Sean. And he actually wrote me a letter after his class, day one of eight, and he wrote in it, babe, as he always did, I love you. You're not my mom. 
<laughs> and I was like, I was like, I have screamed that at the top of my lungs for, for 13, 13 years. years. And I knew, oh, that, that's it unlocked it. Something's and, working. Yeah. Wow. And it did. It started to rewire his brain, my brain. And we realized we never had a marriage problem. Sonny had a Sonny problem. Sean had a Sean problem. And they were equally devastating for mm. both of us. Sean did end up quitting his job at the church in Detroit. And after he got his family back together and agreed to ongoing counseling, they stayed in Green Bay to figure out their next steps. I thought I was just going to leave ministry. Like that was my goal, honestly. Like I just, I wanted to just go sell shoes at Nordstrom and, <laughs> and be done with it. And I was unemployed, you know, for a long time. I was making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. We only had heat in half of our house. We went out to eat as a family one time and we went to Pizza Hut, we got a medium pizza and we all shared a Pepsi. And it was <laughs> the greatest time of my life because that was the first time, honestly, that I read the entire Bible. I'd been in ministry for 13 years, I hadn't read the whole book. Sonny also left ministry, managing a coffee shop in Green Bay to pay the bills. And during their three year sabbatical, she and Sean focused on their kids and their marriage and the healing that they needed individually. In 2013, the church that they attended in Green Bay asked them to take over when their pastor left. The reason that we're so endeared to Green Bay is it was the first place that we were ever healthy. Mm. It's the first place we've ever done ministry where we've been who we were supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And I think yeah. that's why God has allowed us to have so much success is because from the very beginning, we've been honest about everything, both and privately and publicly. Today, in addition to leading a thriving church in Green Bay, Wisconsin, this time around with humility and authenticity, Sonny and Sean created the Exchange Collaborative, an organization that helps pastors and their families dealing with burnout, moral failures, and unhealthy relationships. It is an epidemic in its own right of pastors who are burnt out, who have questioned their calling, who have walked away, or they're only still at their church because if they walked away, they'd be unemployed. Their wife and kids would just be left out in the cold. So they're holding yeah. on, but it's not because they want to, and they're hurting. What are some of the common denominators for uh, healthy church cultures that allow for their pastors to thrive and be healthy and be accountable? Like, what do you see as some of the most common guardrails there? Well, I think guys aren't transparent. They, they aren't vulnerable, partially because of fear. Maybe they feel like if they own what it is, that they're caught up in, then they're going to lose their job. I mean, let, let's, say, let's say you're a staff pastor and you're struggling with a particular issue and you go to your senior pastor, you're running the chance that you're going to get fired. If you're a senior pastor and you go to your, to your overseers and you tell them that you're having a struggle, you're running the risk that you're going to get fired. Sure. Some of those guys need to get fired. Mm -hmm. Let's just be clear about it. Like yeah. the best thing that could happen to them, and we've told this to some of the couples that have come to us, hey, the best thing that could happen to you is you fall on your face mm -hmm. because you need a, a healthy dose of humility. Is there a line life. there? Like, where do you draw? How do you know who needs to go? Guys that are trying to hide it, they should go. Okay. They either should resign or be honest and submit themselves to some sort of a process. And so yeah. the thing that we're encountering with pastors is that they are so busy trying to, to keep their ministry intact, that they're failing to keep their life intact. And it's not necessarily that our 
that our goal is to get people to be restored back into ministry. There are pastors in churches right now that if they died in a car wreck, mm. they're not going to go to heaven. Mm-hmm. Mm. They're great communicators, but they're terrible people. And <laughs> the, the thing that people have talked about about us that shocks them is, is how blunt we are. Maybe part of that comes from the fact that I'm an ex-con. And I go, listen, we have people's eternity in our hands. And yeah. we're going to mess around and go, but I'm not going to have my 403B anymore? Mm. Like, bro, like crazy how we yeah. people down the highway to hell. And there are, there are guys that, even guys that are in incredibly successful churches, that if they were to fall, they would do more damage in their fall for the kingdom than they ever did good in their rise. Mm. Because you're going to have people who not only are going to be affected spiritually, but you'll have a whole generation of people who will walk away and will never come back to the faith. But what we want is we want to give guys an alternative to say, okay, you can't tell your pastor or you can't tell your overseers, come and talk to us. Let's come up with a plan. Sean and Sonny also host a podcast called The Rise After the Fall, which takes a raw, honest look at the state of the modern church and features stories of pastors and their family members who are all in the process of picking up the pieces and starting over, the same way that Sonny and Sean did years ago. Well, what would you say to someone who's listening? You know, we tend to, to try and speak straight to the heart of skeptics and people that are sort of one foot in, one foot out with Christianity. What would you say to them, especially those who have either directly or indirectly been harmed by or disillusioned by bad actors in the church, right? Or unfaithful Christian leaders that have wounded many and maybe that's caused them to question whether Jesus is for them. Well, I think the word that has been used has been disposable. And I think when we say like the, the the wives have felt disposable of the pastor who had some sort of a moral failure, I think that there's a whole generation of people who have felt disposable. And they're the, the victims that they never get to tell their story. I was just reading a story about a pastor in Canada who pastored one of the largest churches in Canada. And he had like this brutal fall. And then all of these victims of it, if you would. And it wasn't like they were direct victims of like, you know, being sexually assaulted or something, but they, this guy was like their Messiah. And all of a sudden he's gone and now their church is gone and everything that they had kind of built their life around. And, and so there's this whole generation of people who, because of the fall of one man, they feel disposable and they don't get a voice. And this, I think the word that I would give to a skeptic, cause I am one. To this day, I'm a skeptic. Yeah. I would say you are not disposable. That scripture says he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. That he is yeah. a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And I'm telling you as a guy who has had his nose deep in the dirt from falling on his face, he never one time left me. And my father-in-law was a picture of that. My father-in-law loved me, but man, he was mad. But yeah. even though he was mad, He loved me enough to make sure that I didn't do something that I was going to regret. And that's the God we serve, a God Mm. who doesn't like some of the things that we do. Obviously, he doesn't, he doesn't, totally contrary to what he asks us to do, but he's not going to, you're not disposable in his hand. Mm -hmm. Wow. Praise God. We're seeing a move of God to purify his church. 
Right. You know, God will not be mocked. God will not mm-hmm. let us continue to speak in his name and behave completely the, you know, opposite and the antithesis of the gospel. He he will yeah. not allow that. And I think there's an awful lot of uh, pastors who are imposters. You know, hypocrite comes from the word in Greek that means actor, right? We have actors in pulpits who know nothing of the Lord. You know, you look at Ravi Zacharias. Yeah. I, I mean, how can you behave like that? I mean, you know, it's between him and God what's going on with him right now. And and he knows uh-huh. he's getting his day of reckoning. But I, yeah. how can anyone who has a fear of God, like you said, you said this earlier in, in our interview, you said, someday I'm going to stand before the Lord and give account. If you really believe that, how do you behave like this? So, yeah, I think this is a reckoning. It's going to keep coming. And, you know, I thought at first it would be like a year or two. Now I'm like, this is going to be probably a several decades process. And it's going to take as long as as we make it take. It's going to take people, the the masses, and a grassroots effort. And that's why I just try to educate people. But it's going to take them saying, we refuse to give unless you open up your books. We refuse to give unless we know what your salary is. We refuse to give if you're not willing to hold yourself accountable. We refuse to give if, if you don't have an independent board. Because until we do that and we force accountability and transparency, it won't happen. Right. You mentioned a word earlier, the the word disqualifying. And that's really what, what I wanted to get your two cents on. It seems to many people, I think, that the word disqualifying might be an antithetical to the Christian notion of mm-hmm. grace. Like, mm-hmm. is any sin disqualifying us when Jesus's blood on the cross, you know, covers all of our sins? Mm-hmm. But are there some behaviors in your mind that for leaders, pastors, elders in the church are essentially and eternally disqualifying in terms of them coming back to you know, pastoral leadership? I've never answered that question with a definitive. Like, if you're unfaithful to your wife, you're disqualified from ministry. Uh, or if, you know, you engage in, you know, fraud or theft from your church, you're disqualified. But I would just say, go back and read the qualifications of elder. I mean, First Timothy 3, 2, the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-control, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Okay, when you commit certain sins, how do you become above reproach again? You know, and, and when you betray trust so fundamentally, like people have asked me, well, how do you, you know, I mean, there should be a, a, a pastor as a path to restoration. And I say restoration to the church, restoration to God, absolutely. God will forgive a repentant sinner and God knows your heart, right? But a path to ministry again, that's a very different thing. And quite frankly, for some people, with what they've done and the way that they've betrayed trust so fundamentally, trust is gained over time and that's earned back over time. And frankly, there's not enough time left in their lifetime to earn back the trust that's required at this point. So I think uh, I think we need to wrestle with those passages. I think we need to be vigilant. There's spiritual abuse going on in in a mm. ridiculous, you know, scale right now. And people are misusing the scriptures and they're misusing grace. And they're they're uh, if I hear one more reference to King David. King David sinned with I, Bathsheba. He did. And you know what yeah. happened? He was judged by God and his his firstborn with Bathsheba was killed by God. Yeah. 
I mean, there were some serious consequences. David wasn't allowed to build the temple. He was a man of war. He wasn't allowed to build the temple. I mean, so his whole family is, fell apart after his that. Whole, oh my goodness, Absalom! Yeah. I mean, you look at what happened to David. If if David is anything, he should be a warning to pastors of what happens and how you can misuse your authority. And he wasn't a pastor; he was a king. He was a political leader. So, right. you know, can people sin in heinous ways, and can God forgive them? Hundred percent, and I thank God for it because He's forgiven me for for horrible things, right? You know, and I thank God for that. But if I would be found chronically lying in my position as a reporter where I'm committed, my whole entire profession is reporting the truth, I would expect that I would be done as a reporter. That would be it. I'm tracking with you, and I agree that I think on principle, any leader who has fallen and caused ripple effects of harm among the flock or even in terms of defaming the church in the world, right? giving the church or Jesus a bad name by his or her actions, I think any desire on that pastor's part to be immediately restored is probably a symptom that they haven't actually dealt with what they've done. Like they're not really repenting, that there's no real remorse there because real repentance would, I think, lead one into a pr prolonged season of, of, of healing and lead you to a posture of, I don't deserve anything anymore. Mm -hmm. and, and that's a good sign of repentance. I don't deserve it, and yeah. I shouldn't be doing it. Just one more question. In the heart of your message, there's in your work, there's always a, I think, if you look real hard, there's always a bit of hope. Like, the reason it's worth reporting is because there's something worth salvaging. What hope do you have for the future? of the church, given everything you're seeing and everything you're reporting on, where does your hope well, my lie? My hope lies in Jesus Christ, right? I, I believe what he said is true. I believe what the word says is true. I believe his church is part of his kingdom on earth. Um, so I believe in the church. And he said the gates of hell won't won't prevail over it and against it. And that's, and it's because I love the church that I'm jealous for her purity, you know, for her, for her restoration, mm -hmm. as I, as I know Jesus is. And he loved his church. He died for his church. So for us to take it lightly, for us to, to wink at what's going on, for us not to grieve over that, for us to even, you know, excuse it is not what somebody does who loves the church and loves God's reputation and, and, and his reputation of righteousness. Jane Austen once wrote, as the clergy are or are not what they ought to be, so are the rest of the nation. That might sound like an exaggeration to some of you, but from my vantage point, it's spot on. Because I've seen the devastation caused by clergy misdeeds and how the damage is never isolated. It reverberates for years, generations even, and a pastor's victims aren't his only victims. His family, his victims' families, the whole church, his community, his city— they all pay a price in some way for one pastor's sins. But I've also seen the hope and the healing that happen when men and women serve God as pastors with integrity and humility. I've seen how their churches and their neighborhoods and even their entire cities flourish around their leadership. When pastors are faithful, everybody around them will be blessed by their ministry. So if you're someone who's been damaged or disappointed by a church leader who fell from grace, I want you to hear me say how sorry I am that that happened to you. And I pray that you'll find the strength to forgive one day, if you haven't already, and that God will give you the wisdom to make the distinction between Christ's perfect message and his imperfect messengers. Finally, if you know a pastor 
who is more about substance than style and more faithful than they are flashy. I hope you'll do something today that will encourage them and lift their spirits. Shoot them a text or write them a note or surprise them with a gift just to let them know that in a world full of celebrities and charlatans, you see them and you're grateful for all the ways that they selflessly serve God and their families and their churches and their communities. It's easy for us all to go negative on all the pastors who get it wrong. But one of the ways that we're gonna overcome this challenge is by lifting up the hardworking clergy who quietly, faithfully get it right with or without the big stage and the large crowds. This episode of Maybe God was produced by Julie Merlin-Coultois and Eric and Giovanna Huffman. Our editors are Donald Kilgore, Shannon Steffen, and Justin Mayer. And the director of all of our full-length YouTube videos is Mark Calver. For more information about Maybe God and to sign up for exclusive updates, and don't forget to follow and engage with us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Thanks for listening, everyone. Hi, friends. It's Sunny again. And I just want to say, Sean and I appreciate your faithful listening. And we hear all the time that many of you are sharing this. In fact, we've had a few people say, I tell everybody I know, specifically other pastors and leaders about this podcast. And so we may have shared in our early season two episode about the story of getting a retreat center that we're now going to call the reserve, Uh, 20 acres, multiple houses, and the ability to house pastors and leaders, their families. We're going to basically say we're hosting the hurting. We're hosting the betrayed. We're restoring the betrayer. Uh, and so now we have a campus to do that on, a, a 20-acre property to do that on, as well as we'll continue to bring people into Green Bay and we provide um, help in the finances for that and the housing for that at times as needed. Also, we'll continue to go to people. We've done that over the last couple of years, flown directly to couples in crisis. That's been an ongoing thing that Sean and I, Pastor Becky, Pastor Barry have done. But what I wanted to ask you is that um, because this retreat center is $1.8 million, which actually for 20 acres, a massive house, other housing, uh, it's really reasonable. We just happened to find it in a great location. And the person who's selling it to us has a ministry heart. He's on the board of the church that we interned at coming right out of Bible college. It's just crazy, the God story. But we need to get $600,000 as the down payment. Now he's going to spread that over the first year. So it's 54,000 a month. Then after that, the 1.2 million that we will finance with him, those payments will start and that's in the 70 some hundred dollars. So $7,000 a month plus utilities and expenses, but that's much more palpable than 54,000 a month. But for this first year, we're grateful that we didn't have to come up with 600,000 to even begin work on the property. We already own it. We're already doing construction. But what I would ask you is if you would consider, and you may say, it's me, I have, you know, $100,000 put away for our church that we are going to start construction on something. Or you may say, I have $1.8 million at the church I lead and we were breaking ground, but I feel <laughs> this is the crazy thing. I've heard some crazy stories about pastors who after 
having the money or praying for the money and they get it for something God's having them do, God told them to give it away. But then God exceeded their expectation and they came back and had eightfold, ninefold. I know of a church in Texas, this just happened. Uh, They gave a million dollars they had raised to break ground on a new property. And someone had been at this conference with them and they had a roof that had caved in and it was a million dollars to repair it. And God told him, give the million dollars. Well, he did. And within a few weeks, they had a company come to them and offer them money for the land and to give them land they owned. And they basically were given about $8 million from their million dollars they gave away. So I just know that when Sean and I even have given $1,200, which was our first big gift when we were first married at a conference and God told us, give everything. And we had $1,201 in our bank account, which was a ton for us. It was like our savings. We gave it, we got home and we had a check in our mailbox for $1,250. Now we made $49 on that, but it increased our faith. We made a lot of return on our faith and that investment and knowing God will never ask us to give that he doesn't have a huge plan. So I take this time to say, you might be the one that says, we're going to give you 1.8. You'll never have to worry about money as you do this ministry. You might say, we're going to give you 600,000 for the down payment so that you don't have to stress for the first year at 54,000 a pop as you build it out. Or you might say, we're going to give monthly or we have something else in mind. Thank you for considering it. Thank you for stepping out in faith and thank you for being a faithful listener to this. We appreciate you.